How's the microphone, Lukey? Working? Oh, there we go. It's working good. I'm going to come in a little bit. No front row here, so I'm going to come in so that I can rain. I can spit on you, Helen, as I talk. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. I heard it first here, ladies and gents. Yeah. How's the week been? How's the week's been, everybody? Um, man, I could probably actually sit down and not even um, be here because of what has already been preached from amongst us and around us and through us. Uh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm really struck, like, this, this story, or we'll get into it in a sec, this story is really what, you know, I, I sort of, in a the, in the little preview at the start with Tim, um, the, the start of this story is really much in the pits and the start of this story is really much on the high. Okay, so that's, that's our starting and our ending. So I hope we're encouraged by this today. So I want to start out with a bit of a, um, bit of a story. It's not really so much of a story, it's more history. His story, exactly, Bob. Exactly. Oh, no, there's not. Nolsey, sorry. Um, I want to start out with this story. On, on, on the 3rd of uh, April in 1968, Martin Luther King, he delivered a really famous speech called, I've been to the mountaintop. All right, so in a bit of a context, he was speaking at like sort of a, uh, like a strike around sanitation workers in the area. And in, in this speech, he said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And then he continued on later on towards the end. He said, I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up the mountain. I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Interesting line, that last one. Hey, we as a people will get to the promised land. We all familiar with who Martin Luther King Jr. was, hey? He's a, like a, a rights campaigner. He was a reverend and like a, a lot of other things. But as he delivered this speech, all right, the following night after he gave this speech, and not even 24 hours later, King was shot and killed on the balcony of his motel room at the Lorraine Motel. Now, some people see this, this speech of, of King as like his last speech is sort of being like prophetic in a way and sort of looking forward into a culture where race divides will be, will be healed in, in the culture of his country. And his promised land's idea is that of being like this image, this land of peace and this land of harmony and flourishing and, and full shalom. Yet, when we look around... In King's home country of the States, we look around in our own country of Australia. I was going to say America then. We look around in our home country of Australia and we look around the world, okay? We know that this promise, the full expression of this promised land is not here, hey? We've no, we know just by listening to what's happened this morning, like just what we've shared, like little, little baby Levi and, you know, Parky talking about... Um, you know, the, the air crash investigation sort of stuff. Like it's, it's this, these problems in this world and this infighting and the, the, the problems and the, the struggles of this world, we know that the full expression of this kingdom is yet to come. 
So as we've said already, uh, today's our, our final sermon in the life of Moses. Our aim today is to see God's grace and his provision for Moses while Moses is wandering around in the wilderness and to see God's pulling God's grace and provision in getting Moses into the promised land. That's right. You heard me right. Getting Moses into the promised land. So let's meet this God Almighty who gets Moses into the promised land. So story so far, where, who's Moses? Moses, he's this exceptionally born baby in the bulrushes. We talked about this a couple, few weeks ago, whenever it was, when we started Moses. He's the man, he's born between nations, he's born between Egypt, he's born between Israel. He's then called into leading God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. So he's called into a middle place between Israel and God then. And he's, he's, he's tasked with bringing Israel out of Egypt into this promised land, this land, this beautiful land promised them through their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exactly. So, Parky's last sermon on Moses ended sort of with the people meeting God at the base of a mountain. God's up there, and this mountain is on fire. This mountain is quaking and shaking. It's all this lump of rock can do when it's in such proximity to its creator, okay? It's quaking, shaking, burning mountain, and the people at the foot of it. But don't touch the foot of it. Where does the mountain start? It's this crazy place. So stay well back, okay? This is where people first encounter God at Sinai. And so the people are camped here at the foot of Sinai for a whole calendar year. All right. A lot of the time sort of references and things in the Bible, we, we, if we don't look at it really closely, we can go, oh, yeah, they were camped there for a little bit and then they kept wandering. No, they were at Sinai for a whole year. And during that time, the, whole, the rest of the book of Exodus happens. Leviticus all happens. The whole book of Leviticus happens. And right up until Numbers chapter 10 happens. Okay? It's, and then at Numbers chapter 10, then the people set off. They're like, pack up their camp and they're off into the wilderness. They're following God, the pillar of cloud and fire on, way to the prom- on the way to the promised land. So on the way to the border of the southern, the southern border, I suppose, of the promised land, the people complain. Um, Moses appoints elders. People complain they don't have meat to eat. There's a whole lot of this complaining stuff going on. They don't have meat to eat. So God gives them quails and then a plague breaks out amongst them. A whole bunch of people die. Uh, and then they reach the base of this, like there's a few more laws and things given. Um, Miriam and Aaron sort of have a disagreement with Moses. So God calls the three siblings in. Father God calls the three siblings in and sorts them out. Miriam does a bit of time in the leprosy cell. Uh, and then they get to this promised land, the, the southern border, and God tells Moses to send spies into the land. So in they go. And out they come with bunches of grapes. Two dudes carrying one bunch of grapes. It's a phenomenal land. There's so much produce and good stuff that they see in this land. But they come back and all they can really think about is the massive fortified cities in this place. The massive beastly inhabitants that live in these huge fortified cities. They call them the sons of Anak or the descendants of the Nephilim. These crazy, big, strong people. And so the spies bring out this not only good produce from the promised land, but they bring out this fear, all right? And this fear spreads amongst the people like crazy, okay? It's, it's like a disease almost. And the people go, whoa, 
And they start complaining again, whoa, we're not going in there. All right, we're all going to die. We're not going there. And God's about to destroy them for just being so faithless and, and, and you know, not believing in him and so doubting. He's about to destroy him. And then Moses does this middleman thing again. And he steps in to this middle place between God and the people, pleads on their behalf. And this really strange account in, in Numbers 14, I think it is, where he reminds, where Moses reminds God of what it would look like to the nations around if he's just to drag them out into the wilderness, go to all these lengths of the plagues and everything in Egypt to get them all out here and then to snuff them out. So God relents and he changes his tact a little bit. The instant severity of the punishment is sort of wound down, but he accomplishes effectively the same thing by decreeing that anybody who saw the miracles that got them out of Egypt, any, anyone who saw the amazing things that God did and, and helped them come out of Egypt, none of those people are going to make it into the promised land. They're all going to die out. So that's the situation here for Israel. Except these two people can go into the promised land. Except two people, Caleb, Licky knows all about him, and Joshua. These two guys, God specifically names these two guys. They're going in because they're the two spies that actually came, came out with the full confidence that God was going to fight for them and that they could take these beastly inhabitants of Anak and these fortresses. Okay, so interestingly though, in that, in that little bit there, like Moses' name isn't given as one of the people to go in. I wonder if he thought, hey, God, you're forgetting someone. What about me? His time's yet to come, so who knows? God knows all that will transpire through time. So that next day, God says, Moses, tomorrow you're turning the people around. You're going to go wandering for 40 years while all this, this doubting generation, they all die out. You know, you're all going to fall over in the sand dunes and in the sun and the heat and wherever. You're all going to die out there until you're refreshed and renewed. A new generation is going to come in and um, occupy the land. But the people, and when the people hear about this, they're like, no, 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 no. All right, God, we believe you now. And then they go and try and fight the Amalekites and the Canaanites. But they're crushed and they're trounced and they're pushed back into the wilderness. So begins the slow sentence of wandering around while this doubting generation dies out. Now, here's that time shift again. Not a whole lot is recorded for the majority of that 40 years. Okay. There's a little bit in there, like there's a few more laws given around purity and, and um, sacrifices and things. There's a core rebellion that's crushed. Uh, Aaron's staff buds amongst a bunch of others to show Aaron as God's chosen priest. Not a whole great deal more is recorded until the people wander into this wilderness called Zin. Okay, A wilderness of Zin, not Z, not S, Zin. Okay, and we wander into our first passage that we're going to read today. Uh, it's in Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to camp out here. So let's drag our analogy of reading our Bible passages. Let's make, a, let's make them like we're camping. Hopefully it's not aimless wandering though, while we all die out. Oh my goodness. The analogy is falling well short. So this section of, of Numbers 20 Oh, I know, you know, the, the, the chapter breaks and whatever, they're fairly arbitrary, but this section of scripture really illuminates the, the emotion, I feel it illuminates the emotional climate of the people of Israel at this point in time. 
They're wandering the wilderness. The, the chapter basically starts with death and it ends with death. And in the middle, there's like rejection and, and sort of frustration and all these sort of things. But right in the middle, right in the middle, there is this glimpse of life and there's this glimpse of, subs, of sustenance. Okay? So let's read Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. This is the first month of the 40th year of wandering, okay? In the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So here we go. Starts out terrible, crushing for Moses. Moses' older sister, okay, his watcher, his protector, was when he was in the, as a baby in the river in front of Pharaoh's daughter, um, she pretty much intercedes for, for little baby Moses and offers the solution to Pharaoh's daughter. Remember the story? She is a prophetess. She's probably the leading lady amongst Israel. She dies in this place. Verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished with our brother, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So, amidst this mourning over Miriam's death, this complaining narrative, like theme sort of pops up again. The people start complaining again, but this time it's about thirst, all right? The people are thirsty. They feel like life is being sapped from them in this place. They can't have their thirst quenched. It feels like this slow withering death is creeping up on them, everyone, all of them. Like they know that their time is to come in this wilderness. So is their time, is the way they're going to go a slow, thirsty, withering death? In the wilderness, is that the way? Because they compare themselves to those of their brothers that ha- and sisters that have died in plagues and fires, and they're like, "All right, that was a kind of quicker death. This thirsty thing is terrible." Speaking of thirsty, I'm quite thirsty at the moment. Um, I'm talking too fast. And they, and so they say, you know, why are we out here? You know, slavery. That that place in Egypt was so mu- was so much better. This place that we're in is a land of death. Okay. Slavery was better. Verse 6. Let's keep reading. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. This is a, this is a strange image, but it's so deep. Okay, God, in this wilderness place, has made this rock give water. Life-giving water in a land of death. All right, just park that image in your mind. All right, just hold it up there, lock it away. We'll come back to it later. Verse 9. 
And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Do you remember a time when you you felt a deep, sick feeling in your stomach when you were found out or you were found guilty of something by somebody that you really, really admired? This is a bit of a, a parenting strategy, I think, for, well, good parents. <laughs> because I, I, I can remember experiences like this in my life with my dad. Now, I consider my dad like a great parent. If I could be half the parent he is, I'm doing great. I'm doing super well. I love my dad, okay? I remember experiences like this with my dad because when, when he'd find me out for something that I did and I'd get that like deep twisting right down low in your guts, that deep twisting where it sort of feels like everything's just sort of let loose on you and you get that hot flush feeling in the side of your face. And I, like, I love my dad. He's, he's a gentle man and he's a kind man and I never, ever wanted to upset him. But in, in my rebellious years, I did some really bulk dodgy stuff. And when he would confront me on it and he would explain how disappointed he was to, like, to me, it was gut-wrenching, like, crushingly uncomfortable and maybe you've experienced like a similar thing maybe a parent or you know a friend or someone that you or a mentor that you really admired okay and you've had that feeling so you can imagine extrapolate this up a few thousand times how Moses feels okay when he realized how poorly he had portrayed God in front of God's own people and how he's taken credit for providing the water and how he's hit the rock that he was told to speak to and then just numerous other things that he's fallen short here. And the consequences of him doing this, the consequences of him doing this are him being denied pretty much the fruit of like his whole direction of his 120 years of life. He's like, he was the man like born in between nations. He's meant to set people free. Like all this wandering, all these experiences have all been setting him up for like this, this point in time where he gets to take the people into the land. But it's gone. Not to happen. He's, he'd be gutted. Yeah. Could you imagine like if you, if, if, if you've had your goal on becoming something your whole life and you've gone through you know, multiple university degrees, you've gone through um, getting into the right associations and making the right um, networks and connections and stuff your whole life, then to be denied at the last minute. You can imagine how gutted you'd be, hey? So here's Moses' predicament. He will die outside the promised land with all the rest of the mumbling, grumbling people that he has persevered with to lead all this time. Imagine what he's feeling like. Oh, no. no. Are you serious, God? No way. No way. Don't take this from me. He'd be devastated. 
and would have taken ages to come to grips with, I'm sure. And, but he continues to lead. He continues to lead the people. They go then from here to, um, they, they get rejected by their sort of half-related nation, the Edomites. They try to cross through Edom, and they say, which is a land inhabited by the Edomites, funnily enough. Fancy Australia being inhabited by Australians. Yeah. Anyway, so they, they try to go through here, but they're blocked passage. Okay? The Edomites come out to them and they say, no, 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 no. You guys aren't coming through here. These Edomites are descendants from Esau. You know, Esau was Jacob's twin brother, their forefather Jacob's twin brother. This is a few hundred years later, obviously, so they've turned in themselves into a massive nation. They're like, no, you're not coming through here. You're not coming through here. So they're forced south around. And then Moses takes another blow when Aaron, his brother, dies. God relieves Aaron of his like, earthly duties. On top of the mountain, he's stripped of his robe, it's given to his son, and Aaron dies on the top of Mount Hor as well. So here's Moses, he's continuing to lead the people. His sister Miriam has died. He's been rejected by sort of like a slightly related nation. He's, his brother Aaron has died, which he's relied on so much for talking and, and all this. Okay. Yet, here he is, continuing to lead. He knows his end must be near, though, because this old generation is almost died out. When is his end going to come? Like, how is his end going to, how is his end going to come? All right, is it going to come through battle? Is he going to get his head chopped off? Is he going to like, catch a crazy disease? Like, is he going to get a plague? Is he going to die miserable, like drawn-out death? How is his end going to come? But it's got to be soon because the old generation's almost gone. And the time's almost up. So let's jump to, the, to our next camp for the day. Just jump into Deuteronomy chapter 34. This is our second camp. Um, the wandering of the people is really close to its end here. God's people, they've only got the Jordan River to cross before then they get to occupy this promised land, okay? Let's jump in, read uh, Deuteronomy 34 verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses gets to see the land with his own eyes. Yeah, that's a good thing. The land is right there. This is what, but this is where his path ends because full closure, full completion, full finality for Moses is not for him in this life, okay? It's, he, he's just not. This is as close as he gets to this beautiful new promised land. And it seems so far away because his sin, his slipping up, his falling short has separated him from this promised land. Okay, He can't get there on him, by himself. He can't. He's separated from it. Yet, yet, in this place of being separated out of the land, God's grace still shows up to Moses by letting him see into this land, see all of the land. Some people even think it's see supernaturally the land. Um, his descent that these people will inherit. 
So what mixed emotions? Hey, like, all right, here's the end goal of my life and there it is. I can't get to it, but well, at least I can see it. And thanks God for letting me see it. (laughs) Wow. Mixed emotions for Moses towards the end. Verse five. And here we have, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. So notice here, it's not Moses, the exceptional baby that dies. It's not Moses, the the prince of Egypt that dies. It's not Moses, the murderer. It's not Moses, the shepherd. It's not Moses, the middleman. It's not Moses, the leader. It's not Moses, the deliverer. It's not Moses, the prophet. It's not even Moses, the the chump who slipped up at the last minute and fell short and was prohibited from entering the land. No, it's none of that. It's Moses, the servant of the Lord. He dies. What a way to be remembered, hey? So, you know, in Jesus' parable of the tenants, like what, what's the thing that all the, all the servants and stuff are hanging out to hear? Well done, good and faithful. Exactly, servant. That's the whole aim. So we've drummed up this idea that Moses enters the promised land. How does that happen? He's died. He's like, you know, you guys probably thinking, you know, what are you talking about, Ben? What are you, what are you banging on about this for? Because Moses, he wasn't, he's not worthy to enter the land. We, We just saw him die, didn't we? So let's jump into our final camp for our, as I said, not too, hopefully not too aimless wandering journey today. Um, Let's jump into Mark chapter 9. There's a few verses, a few passages we can go to this, but I'll go Mark. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So Moses wasn't worthy to enter the land on his own accord. He, like the whole generation, like missed the mark and fell short, yeah? Yet here he is, on this Mount of Transfiguration, setting foot in the Promised Land. Here he is. And he's brought in by Jesus. Now, a really interesting thing is, remember when Moses was taken up on the top of Mount Nebo and he was told to look around and God shows him, he gives him like a big sweeping view of the land. So Moses is kind of up on the mountain across the Jordan. So we're sort of, he's, he's looking west. He starts out with things all over his sort of right hand side. He's looking up at all the northern lands like, um, what does he say? Gilead as far as, as Dan and Naphtali, like all these northern kind of district kind of areas that, the, that these tribes are going to inhabit in the north. And the interesting thing is, in this passage here, in the, in, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you see Jesus, he's tracking this journey somewhere between Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the north. He's coming down to like a place called Capernaum, which is also up in the north. So this mountain, Mount of Transfiguration, somewhere in the middle, somewhere up in the north. So in Moses, when he's up on the Mount of, uh, of sorry, he's up on Mount Nebo, okay, back into his, the original life of Moses. When he's on the Mount of Nebo, he's looking into the land, the first 
place that, you know, his, his direction is given to by the Lord is up the north where he's going to come in for the first time with Jesus. How cool is this? So indeed, Moses dies at the end of his normal life. But here he is with Jesus in a, a resurrected body. And we've talked about, you know, the resurrection body today. And, you know, this is the, how great will it be to have resurrected bodies? Amen. Amen who needs a resurrected body. Yes, absolutely. So here's Moses. He's, he's turned up with Jesus in a resurrected body, in this resurrected form, which is only made possible through Jesus' death, which is yet to come at, from this point in time. So he's kind of been given like a resurrected body on credit, so to speak. All right? All right? He's, he's got it now. Jesus is yet to pay for it in full. But God, remember, God's outside of time. God knows what's going to happen. So he can, he can, he can provide um, salvation for these people that come before Jesus' death as he can afterwards because he knows that this sacrifice to end all sacrifices and bring all people, provide the way for all people to come back to himself will be completed by Jesus. So here is Moses talking to Jesus in the promised land. He's been brought into Jesus. He's been brought, he's been brought sorry, into the promised land by Jesus. Here's a bit of an English lesson. He's been bought, B-O-U-G-H-T, by Jesus on credit, so to speak. Okay? And he's been brought in to the promised land by Jesus. B-R-O-U-G-H-T. I hope I got the spelling right. Make sense? So, where do we go from here? This is just all interesting at this point in time. See, the illustration of this wilderness wandering this, is, is, this, is this life full of death and dying. That's the, that's the life that we experience here in this broken world. Okay, right now. The life, the, the life that we're all sort of toiling with and we're groaning in, okay? This is why, you know, little babies are born with, you know, half a heart or, you know, only half a heart working. And, you know, this is why just being bombarded actually through the week with so many terrible stories. Of, like, I was talking with Lukey on Thursday night just about the terrible things that we hear happening in the world. And this is the land of death and dying that we're in, Okay? This is the wandering in the wilderness. And so much of the time, we have this real temptation to, and so many of the people around us living and sharing in this world that don't know Jesus do this, okay? We look back to slavery. Sometimes we look back and we go, man, life was so easy then. Like, we had so much good stuff. We could just do whatever we wanted. You know, it was, it was delightful back then in slavery. We had all we could eat. We had water and whatever. You know, we had that. Sometimes we're tempted to look back at that. And then sometimes we just look around at the mess we're in and sometimes we just lament and we just groan about the miserable situation we're in. And then sometimes as we get nearer to this promised land, we start catching glimpses of it and really understanding what it looks like and how great it actually is. And we desire this promised land more and more. And so, look, we long for this promised land, don't we? We long for the complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God, don't we? Am I wrong? Am I right? Are you awake? No. Okay. 
But we long for this eternal state. We long for the kingdom of God, don't we? Where God's rule and his perfect ways is going to be set out over the nations and there'll be complete flourishing, complete peace and harmony and shalom between different people groups. Yet we're stuck in this middle ground in this thirsty wilderness of slow death. But God's grace has been injected into this place. All right? As some preachers would say, there's grace for that. You know, who would say that? There, has, there, has, there is grace injected into this wilderness, this wandering, wandering crazy life. Because God, this is the illustration, okay? It shows up in the wilderness to God's people while they're wandering around, they're dying of thirst. This grace shows up as a rock. On the surface, a rock's nothing amazing. Rocks in the desert. How many of them are there? Squillions, probably. Okay? It's nothing, ordin- it's lo- it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's not flashy. It's not exceptional in any way. But what comes from this rock is exceptional and it is desirable. Okay? Because like the rock in the wilderness that Moses hit with the staff in anger and you know, out gushed megaliters of water for thirsty and dying, millions of thirsty and dying people and animals. So Jesus, the Bible describes Jesus as a rock, okay? the rock that builders reject, the rock that disobedient people trip and stumble over. Jesus, the rock, has come into this world and he's gushed out blood which is life-giving water for dying people. And this is what Paul says to God's messed up people in Corinth, okay? And he seals this analogy. He says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you're playing along at home, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that your fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So God, in his grace through Jesus, he's provided in this pits of a world, pits of a place, broken, busted, dying, thirsty world, grace through Jesus. And he's provided grace in letting us see the kingdom to come, see glimpses of the kingdom that will come, that will fully take over this place. And like, you know, the gushing out water where it's just blasting over, washing dirt and grime off and hydrating all cells of the body and everything. So this life-giving flow of blood that Jesus has poured out into this world once again, washes clean, knocks off dirt, grime, grit, whatever, hydrates ourselves for life. So the more I get to know God through Jesus and through these illustrations and stuff, the more I see of this promised land. Like I feel like I'm like Moses up on that mountain looking over and I can see a little bit more and a little bit more every time. And it's great. It's amazing. It's a beautiful world. I can't wait for it to come. I really can't. I can't wait for it. And I'll just, in, in this season, I'm just going to take promise. And like, I'm just going to hold God's promise because I know he holds his promises. Sure, because what better illustration of God sticking to his promises than, you know, the illustration of him keeping this covenant with his people and keeping them in the world? Because look, 
thousands of years after the, the, the accounts that we've just been reading about, thousands of years later, there is an Israelite people in a land, and it's their land. And uh, like they've survived there through exiles and you know, attempted genocides and you know, all these sorts of things. And that just doesn't happen in, normally to other nations. If they lose their homeland, they get wiped out, they get assimilated somewhere else. They don't. They don't. But Israel does. And they don't know their Messiah yet. Like so many of them, they don't know Jesus yet. They're still looking for him. But God's still faithful. He's still got them in their land. So this is God's character, and this is why I just want, to, I want us to hold on to. God's character is that he keeps his promises. He'll always hold true to them. He will bring his people into the promised land. Okay, Jesus brings us into the promised land, the real one, the full expression of the promised land. And as Martin Luther King's final lines from that I've been to the mountaintop speech, uh, I'm just going to quote those last lines because I really think he did have a glimpse of things. He says, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 